The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with John Thomas Flynn, who is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Ask the CIO, SLED edition on Federal News Network. Now your host, John Thomas Flynn. Welcome, everyone. Our guest today is Ann Duncan, former Chief Information Officer at the Federal Environmental Protection Agency and Santa Clara County, California's CIO, now with Dell. Welcome to Ask the CIO SLED edition on our state and local program, and great to have you on the air. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. Over the last year and, and a half or so, we've interviewed about 40 state and local government IT and program leaders. In fact, uh, just two weeks ago, we had former Governor Martin O'Malley from uh, Maryland on the show uh, to talk about his performance measurements in government. But uh, we have never conducted an interview with someone with your n- unique background, specifically having not only local government IT leadership, but federal CIO responsibility as well. Plus, it's a bonus that your local and fed roles were uh, preceded by your experience as a school district CIO in Palo Alto. It's kind of a threefer, if you will, so it's great. There's not been a lot of cross-pollination between the federal CIO positions and state and local government, though I see that starting to change. I know Terry Takai uh, in California, one of my successors, she went to DOD and and Dave DeVries, OPM to Michigan. And uh, I had an experience of uh, my interview with, uh, uh, for the CIO job I have to tell you about. But tell us about your history, going back from a local school district to the White House appointment at the Environmental Protection Agency. That's quite a jump. Tell us about the process of your appointment. So, yeah, that is the uh, ultimate example of just happening to be in the right place at the right time. I was uh, in charge of a meeting for HP in D.C. back when I worked for HP in, uh, must have been 2007 or 2006 uh, in D.C. And I met someone who came back to me shortly after I joined the school district and said uh, he was working on presidential appointments in the Obama administration and would love to have my resume. And as these things work, about three years later, I got a phone call from the White House, which I thought was a joke until <laughs> uh, they mentioned his name. You know, you, you get a phone call from the Office of Presidential Personnel out of the blue and you just you don't believe that. <laughs> but it turned out to be true. And that was the beginning of my rather long journey to D.C. You know, it's interesting. I look back. I was actually back in right after 9-11. I uh, was uh, looking at, at a possibility of a federal CIO appointment and I was back in D.C. and I went to the, you know, the White House, the old executive office building, get in there. Of course, I was late, you know, went to the wrong office, a big line to get in. So I'm the, one of the aides come down and, and meets me, as, of course, to go up to the meeting. And we get on this crowded elevator and I just looked at her and I said, you know, I always like to come a little bit late to my White House appointments. <laughs> of course, I got plenty of stairs around there. Well, I never came to much, but uh, it was an interesting process. I understand that when you did, there was a bit of a, a kerfuffle over your your uh, confirmation. Tell us a little bit about that and how it all worked out in the end. Well, the, the way it worked out was uh, that basically um, the Senate decided that they weren't going to confirm anybody else at the EPA. Uh, they confirmed Gina McCarthy in the um, summer of 2013. And she was the last uh, appointee confirmed um, at uh, EPA. So after that, uh, we all went and died in committee. So I had two hearings. 
and um, was reported, actually was reported at a committee once, but we never came to a floor vote. They, you know, there was a great deal of effort on the part of the White House to get us through and get us all confirmed. I was thankfully able to take on the CIO role. As it turns out, the, the administration had combined the assistant administrator position for the Office of Environmental Information and the CIO. Um, the CIO does not require Senate confirmation. Um, so they delegated the, the CIO authorities back to the CIO position as a standalone. And so I was able to come on board, even though I never got confirmed. Not everyone who was a nominee was in a position where there was that kind of ability to separate a job. In fact, I think I was the only one at EPA who was really in that situation. So some people were current employees and they were able to act in their roles, but other people sat waiting to be nominee, waiting to be confirmed and finally gave up. I think, I think Ken Kaposis um, made a record, create a record as the longest waiting nominee at over <laughs> three years, I believe. Um, you know, and it's unfortunate because, you know, the, the, the president should be able to have his team, you know, that he, he wasn't able to have the team that he wanted to have because uh, Congress wouldn't allow him. And that's a shame. Yeah. And it those kind of things so often happen, not just in the federal government. All we, we seem to we seem to see that a lot more prevalent. But I was just remarking the other day, the state of California has been without a, a full time chief information security officer for almost a year. It just blows my mind that the executives that are running things can't see the value of having these people, you know, in a full time position in some of these really uh, important roles. In fact, your description of what happened to you sounds not unlike what happened to my friend uh, Terry Takai when she was going over to DOD. I think she was going to have a, a position that required Senate confirmation. And for one reason or another, uh, they changed the job description to uh, just make it a CIO position and it didn't require the Senate confirmation. I'm not sure if you recall that. I don't recall the details of Terry's situation. And there is some flexibility for um, some of those positions to go back between career and political, although there's a limited number of CIOs that are Senate confirmed, and those seem to be pretty firmly entrenched. But she may have been up for a different, a more senior position that they then converted to the CIO to get her to work. I'm, yeah, I'm not sure. Could be. As a regular part of, of my program, I like to examine uh, the CIO governance model, which I define as the role and responsibilities and authority of the CIO. And again, in my experience, these factors clearly, clearly determine whether the, the CIO has an environment which can, which can lead to success or not. So governments in all sectors, I know federal, state, local, even education, are notorious for their disparate CIO governance models. What was your position as CIO in EPA's organizational hierarchy when you started on the job? So as the CIO, I reported um, directly to Gina McCarthy, the, the head of the agency, and I had a dotted line uh, to her deputy, uh, Stan Myberg. So functionally as a team, um, the operations folks, uh, HR, finance, uh, procurement, myself, that we worked with Stan functionally, but it was very clear that, that I worked for Gina. And did you have both a, an operational responsibility as well as policy and budget? Yes. So within within EPA, the CIO was responsible for budget, uh, for IT policies, and for day to day operations. Yeah. And um, again, those are delegations uh, in my case from the assistant administrator. You know, back to my experience, the the position that I uh, interviewed for was at the Department of Transportation, 
And I met with, uh, I was down there for a full day, met with everybody from the very beginning uh, all the way up to Secretary Mineta. And one of the things that was very clear to me that the job was strictly policy and maybe a little bit of budget. And I remember talking to the chief of staff and I say, look, you know, if I get this job, do I have an opportunity to, to formulate a, a real uh, environment for success here in an organization that's really going to be helpful to get the job done for Secretary Mineta? And his, his answer was no. <laughs> so I wasn't, I wasn't expecting to get hired for that position. And I noticed that so many of the jobs, particularly some in state and some federal and some others, you know, don't come with that uh, that operational authority, which is so critical to have in addition to the kind of uh, position you get in the hierarchy and the organization itself, which is so is so important. And I think you, you understand that and certainly uh, some things that have happened at EPA since you left, I know uh, – uh, our evidence, I don't know I don't know what the results are of um, performance, but I certainly know that the the changes that were made to the CIO's position in EPA were drastically changed, uh, I think, in 2018. I think they're pretty much still where they are. Yeah, you know, it's unfortunate that, um, you know, the, the um, Trump administration has just decided not to replace my position. And in fact, they've reorganized um, IT to put it under... Uh, an organization they now call Mission Support. And so while um, I understand that the new CIO, who I know and I have a great deal of respect for, is given, you know, sort of a tacit um, direct line to the administrator, I have my doubts as to whether that's truly uh, in the spirit of a direct relationship with the administrator as was described in Fatara. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, that role has been disempowered a great deal. And um, I have no doubt the CIO is doing is doing a great job at uh, maximizing his authorities. But uh, I think he's been put in a difficult position. And that's Vaughn Noga. Yes, that's Vaughn Naga. That's, that's right. Vaughn. Yes. We're going to take a short break right now. Our guest today is Ann Duncan, former CIO at EPA in Santa Clara County. Now with Dell, you're listening to Ask the CIO Sled Edition on Federal News Network. I'm John Thomas Flynn. More than 30 years ago, a new type of bacteria was discovered by a scientist in the mud of the Potomac River. It wasn't the goal then, but now it could provide a key to producing clean energy. While studying pollution in the Potomac and Chesapeake Bay, Derek Lovely, now a microbiology professor at the University of Massachusetts, found a unique bacteria that lived off of metals. The same way that we use oxygen. He called it geobacter, and in studying how they work... We discovered that they were producing these thin protein filaments that were electrically conductive. Lovely was excited about the prospect of using these so-called nanowires, which can be produced without the toxic materials typically used in manufacturing man-made versions, for powering electronic devices. But I never envisioned the discovery that's reported this month. None of us did. It was a serendipitous discovery. It's just it's amazing. More on that in my report next week with the National Academy of Engineering, Randy Atkins, Federal News Network. With your Mayo Clinic Radio Health Minute, I'm Joel Street. Most of us aren't aware we are doing it, touching our face between 3 to 30 times an hour. The problem, says Dr. Gregory Poland, is what we touch beforehand is often riddled with germs. Bathroom faucets, door handles, escalator rails, computer terminals, anything that is commonly touched by the public. But how germ-filled are common objects? 
Let's start with money. Bad, but not highly transmissible. Touch screens, devices, phones? Bad. Restaurant menus? Really bad. Doorknob handles? Really, really bad. What about our computer keyboards? Those have been shown over and over again to be really grossly contaminated. Dr. Poland offers these suggestions to reduce the chances of getting sick from these germs. First, keep your hands out of your eyes, nose, and mouth. Second is either wash your hands with soap and water or use hand sanitizer. For more information, talk with your health care provider or visit mayoclinic.org. Welcome back to Ask the CIO Sled Edition on Federal News Network. I'm John Thomas Flynn, and my guest today is Ann Duncan, former CIO at the Federal Environmental Protection Agency in Santa Clara County, California, now with Dell. Before the break, Ann, we were just talking about the changes in the uh, CIO governance model particularly at the federal EPA uh, after you left. And it's interesting that uh, in California uh, a few years ago when Jerry Brown became governor, I guess going on nine years ago now, one of the first things he did was to eliminate the cabinet position of the state CIO, which Terry Takai had gotten when she became CIO four or five years prior to that. And it was such a an achievement because when I took the job in 2095 it was, I mean, I had 15 people in all pol- and just policy and budget, and it was very, very difficult. Uh, I spent four, three years there trying to uh, build a, C- a strong CIO governance model. It really took uh, uh, five or six more years before the Schwarzenegger administration, believe it or not, uh, empowered uh, Terry Takai and brought her in, and she was able to really make that job work. And, of course, just a few years later, it's back down to uh, you know, a third-tier uh, position, and with all the uh, with the, all the incumbent uh, uh, responsibilities that are so difficult to achieve when that uh, br- that line's broken of responsibility and a seat at the table, let's talk a little bit about that culture change that's so important to a CIO, particularly uh, as you come into a new organization. I watched your presentation recently at a conference in Sacramento, I believe it was, where you were introduced by an old friend, Adam Dondra, who's the agency information officer at California's Health and Human Service Agency. You had a, uh, a relatively provocative open where you slammed the previous statement or presentation. I found that refreshing, by the way. Uh, they maintained that no one could create a culture, and you strongly disagreed, and I concur. Tell us about your thoughts on organizational culture and what you encountered at, at EPA headquarters. Sure. Um, I think um, that organizational cultures – are first of all challenging to change, but second of all, can um, be very intentionally changed and created. And that was the, the comment of the previous speaker had been that you can't sort of force organizational change. And I, and I disagree that I think that you can make an organization change. Uh, it's not easy, uh, but you can. And so EPA actually, uh, culturally, EPA is mostly a very, very strong culture. And I have no doubt it still is. Uh, EPA is full of really, really great people who are driven to be there because of the mission. But you have, EPA has literally thousands of attorneys, all of whom could be making much, much more money elsewhere. The same goes for the engineers and many of the environmental scientists. You know, almost any position you can take at EPA, you can do substantially better in the private sector because, you know, these are people who are tremendously talented and capable and driven. And you see that to varying degrees across government, but anytime an an agency is mission-driven, I think that's very true. The cultural challenges that you did see at EPA were just, over time, 
people sort of get beat down by how hard it is to do things. And they sort of get an attitude of, well, you know, I will, um, I'll wait until someone does the step before me. And when it shows up, then I'll do my job. And the other thing that happens is someone gets kind of slapped down for uh, doing something risky. Uh, they get an audit finding, they get beat up by someone in oversight and they get really, really risk averse. So, so those are the two things that we really worked on is getting people to take more initiative, to have a really biased reaction and uh, getting people to take risks. Uh, and that's a problem across all government as we saw this in Santa Clara as well, is um, you have to create a safe environment uh, where people can do those things, you know, but otherwise EPA has an incredible culture and I have no doubt that it is very much alive and well, regardless of any challenges uh, they're facing in the current administration. You know, one of the things that caught my eye in uh, re researching uh, your background and uh, some of the presentations you've done, and you just mentioned it a little bit, it, it involved risk. And I think the way the first time I ever heard heard it expressed, you said risk is important, but not stupid risk. And you, you chose the smart risk way to go. So tell us about that philosophy. You know, what I, we try and tell people is we've got to take risks to be successful. Nothing, nothing really important or valuable is without risk. And we want our employees to feel empowered to take risks, but we don't want them to do things that are stupid. Uh, so what we want people to do is to think about what they want to accomplish, uh, to get the backing of their management team, and, and to be explicit about, hey, there's some risk in this, and I want to do it. And, and you know, as an example... If you want to uh, go after a project that um, you want $50,000 in seed money and you're really upfront that this might not work and we may throw away $50,000, hey, that's great. I'd rather do that than take what we think is the safe bet and spend $10 million and then find myself sitting in front of an oversight committee on the Hill explaining why we, we threw away $10 million on a project. Because often the things that look riskier are in fact safer. You know, that risk of, of making a, a, a determination early uh, as to whether we can do something or not and spending that $50,000 is much, much cheaper than taking the path that we think is, is safe. And, you know, five years later, we spent that $10 million and have nothing to show for it. Sure. You know, one of your other goals, and, and I found this uh, really hit close to home, my own experience, and that was inculcating a sense of urgency uh, and leadership in your organization. Uh, it's very challenging, but it really needs to be done if you're going to be an effective CIO. Talk a little bit about that sense of urgency. Sure. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, you know, it's very easy in government to become complacent. There's a lot of, um, there's not a lot of external uh, threats in most parts of government that make you go fast. I mean, there, there, there are obvious places where there are, you know, we, we run three hospitals in the county, um, everyone in the hospital system has a sense of urgency every single day. I don't need to create it for them. It's there because they need to make sure patients are cared for. But other parts of the organization, it can be extremely difficult to create some sense that um, that I need to go fast, that time matters. Uh, you know, government has an attitude often that, you know, time is infinite. It doesn't matter how long things take. And, and you know, the interesting thing about the executive branch of uh, the federal government is that that is sort of bifurcated because you've got a whole bunch of, uh, you've got a president and his appointees who have a very clear sense that there's a clock. It's a four-year clock or an eight-year clock. They don't know how long the clock is. All they know is there's a clock and they got to go fast. 
And that tends to have one of two impacts on people in the government. Uh, either they get on board with, we're going to go fast, or they go, well, you know, these people are going to go away too. I can wait. And I'll just go at the same rate I've always been going. But we really want people to recognize that time matters and to look at a project and to say, how can I move this forward? Because people really, no one wants to go slowly. They just get used to working in a system that is slow. And so if we create that sense of let's look for the next thing to do, let's not wait for the, for the person who we think might get back to us eventually. Let's figure out how to speed that process up. Let's figure out how to move things forward. What's the next thing that's going to happen? And we can really make things happen a lot faster in government. Um, you know, we can also find ways to you know, clean up the process. One of the federal CIOs once said to me, go break the rules, just don't break the law. And by that, it means, you know, go look at those rules and figure out whether they're really rules. And, 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 and by that sense, whether there's a law behind them or whether someone just always thought we should do things this way. Mm-hmm. And if it's simply a matter of someone just thought we should always do things this way, then that's an opportunity to change. And you know, so, you, so you know, I take the engineering approach and ask why, right? Why, 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 until I get to an answer. Unfortunately, sometimes I get to an answer like the Anti-Deficiency Act, in which case, well, I'm going to have to live with this. But sometimes the answer comes up to, well, we don't actually know. We've just always done it that way. And that's an opportunity to change the way we do things. You know, another area that you were very proud of uh, from your work at EPA and probably in Santa Clara as well is that is an, an agile environment and philosophy. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, I think in, in EPA even more so than in, in uh, Santa Clara, but in both cases, I've really been very focused on agile development. And the reason why I say more so in EPA is because the federal government just has way more custom development. Um, although I would certainly argue that you can apply Agile to the implementation of COTS products. And we've certainly done some of that as well um, in our uh, in our organization in Santa Clara. And in Santa Clara, we've been implementing Agile. We've got an excellent, several excellent scrum teams operating now and an amazing Agile coach who's one of the, uh, I think he's some of the certifications he has, only a few hundred people in the world have. And he's doing an amazing job helping the teams move forward. You know, that's part of figuring out how to go faster and also figuring out how to do a better job with taxpayer money. Because the reality is, you know, the, the life cycle of a technology now is, is is 18 months to two years, maybe three years before you're behind the curve or, or even while that technology is completely obsolete. And if we spend a year gathering requirements, a year doing an RFP, we spend three years having someone build a monolithic product for us or inst- implementing that project. By the time it's implemented, it's obsolete. Uh, so we've got to be more agile. We've got to find ways to figure out our requirements more quickly, to buy things more quickly, to build things more quickly, to implement more quickly. And agile is a key way to do that uh, so that government can actually better serve uh, the people that were there to serve and do it more cost effectively. Amen. We're going to have to conclude our program. I want to thank our guest, Ann Duncan, former chief information officer at the Federal Environmental Protection Agency and Santa Clara County, California CIO, now with Dell. Thanks for taking the time to be with us, Ann. It was great and very, very interesting. Thank you, John. And thank all of you for listening. Content from the state and local program, which also includes curated news and original articles by yours truly and other more esteemed authors, is part of the recently expanded AskTheCIO.com. Hope you can join us again each Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time or listen to a podcast afterwards. Until then, bye for now. I'm John Thomas Flynn.
You've been listening to Ask the CIO, SLED Edition with John Thomas Flynn on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.